Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this, astoundingly, is the 13th episode of Saga Thing dedicated to the story of Ail Scott the Grimson Saga. 13th. That's a lot of episodes. Yes, it is. And it's conveniently Friday the 13th, John. Yes, it is. I feel like this is going to be our lucky day. Uh, do you, though? I mean, it's already been going kind of poorly for you, hasn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, full disclosure, uh, we're actually recording this for the second time because <laughs> I managed to erase my half of our recording the first time. After a full evening of yes. trying to figure out how to work your computer. Look, it wasn't my idea to record on Friday the 13th. <laughs> well, I mean, you that's, kind of forced us into the situation, I, I feel you? like I feel like that's kind of on you. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> All right, but... Uh, you know, it's not like we're even close to covering everything there is to say about Ale. Uh, 13 episodes is a lot, but uh, that's not enough to really do uh, Ale justice. We're trying, but we have had to ignore a few details here and there. Well, I mean, you have to leave something for a director's commentary, don't you? I, I mean, How would a director's commentary work? <laughs> what? A commentary on a podcast. What would you... How um, would that work? I, I mean, I guess the sound of our voices would suddenly drop in volume, at, at which point you'd hear... The sound of our voices, but talking about something completely different. <laughs> I, don't think Look, I didn't that... say it was a good idea. No, no. Follow your dreams, John. That's All that's right. great. That's what I do. So uh, what is it we do here, Andy? Well, we choose a saga, discuss its themes, and then judge it at the saga thing. But lately, we just summarize Ale Saga episode after episode for a year. It's forever going to be a year amen. by the time we finish. But the uh, the end is nigh, John. This Hallelujah. is our penultimate episode on ale. Yeah, not not counting judgments. But you, you couldn't even let me have the moment, could you? I'm striving for accuracy. It's the anti-penultimate episode. Of there you go. Things. There you go. I think we said that last time. <laughs> uh, so these final two episodes, uh, this one and the next one, are going to be the story of ale settling down in Iceland. Mm-hmm. He's been all over the Northern European map for the last few decades, from Iceland to England to Norway to Estonia to Sweden. Yeah, it's high time he retired from the young man's game of raiding and antagonizing Norwegian kings and set himself up with a comfortable retirement back at home in Iceland. Yeah. Well, uh, Ail may be contemplating a life of leisure now, but that doesn't mean he isn't still going to attract trouble. Uh, but before we get into all that, we should probably remind folks of what he's been up to lately. Well, that sounded like a recap segue. Yes, it was. Let's uh, do but it. But again, it works better if you don't point it out. Oh, pishaw. Last time on Ale Saga. Ale set off on a quest to collect the king's tax from the people of Vomland. Not that he gives a tinker's damn about King Halkin's finances. He does it to protect the interests of his friend, Thorsten Thorson of Vik. But winter weather makes the journey quite the tall order. And worse yet, the king's men traveling with Ale are actively trying to kill him. Yeah, not to mention that almost everyone else in Vomland is also interested in punching Ale's ticket to Valhalla. Yes, it's quite the can of worms. Abandoned to die by the king's men, Ale and his three companions found shelter in the home of Armod Beard. But after a night of deliberate overfeeding and drinking, Ale reversed the old bag vomiting copiously into his host's face and illustrious beard. Mm. Convinced that Armand had done him dirty, Ale gouged out one of his host's eyes before returning to the road. The quest continued, with Ale fighting off an ambush from Armand's men. 
saving the life of a young rune-crossed lover, and making merry with a couple of sympathetic sons of the Vomlander soil on his journey. Finally reaching the court of Anvid of Vomland, Ale demanded three years' worth of taxes, but was given only one. And with Anvid's veiled threats ringing in his ears, Ale set out to return to Vik. Ale's return trip turned into a gauntlet of vicious ambushes and near misses, which he barely survives. But he ultimately prevails, leaving the Varman woods littered with the bodies of over two dozen would-be assassins. Ale drops a dime about Arnvid's treachery, and as King Hauken sets out to wreak a little vengeance on the duplicitous Varlanders, Ale sets his sails for Iceland, determined to settle down with his family and enjoy a peaceful retirement. So, Ale was essentially on a side quest last episode. A side quest? Yeah, I think that's how we described it last time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but now he's back in Iceland and we're ready for him to settle down and retire quietly. Well, he's still Ale, so retirement isn't going to be that quiet. But yeah, he's going to try. I mean, the other side of this, of course, is that Iceland represents a different sort of side quest for Ale, doesn't it? From the perspective of narrative time, I mean. Oh, absolutely. We, we've we had relatively little of the saga actually set in Iceland since he left home as a teenager. Yeah, I mean, as a uh, family saga, this is one of the ones where we're hardly ever in Iceland. It's kind of yeah, unusual. Yeah. Um, he has, though, actually spent a fair amount of his life in Iceland. True. But those episodes in the narrative are usually just glossed over as he spent a few years on his farm in Borg. <laughs> yeah. So not much generally happens at home that the saga author is interested in reporting. Right, which is something we're going to have to deal with in these final episodes. Ale has been sort of a rogue figure from a saga perspective. Well, his story still has most of the things that we expect to find in a saga. We have stories of his developing strength and his slightly antisocial nature. We've Mm. got an ongoing feud, this time with uh, Norwegian kings of all people. There's struggles over land ownership like we see in the sagas, but uh, yeah, none of this is linked to Iceland particularly. It's always in Norway. Exactly. Yeah, as you said, his most lasting feud is with the kings and queens of Norway. His land ownership struggles also about Norway. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and his best friends have been a Norwegian, Arnbjorn, and an English king, Avelstan. No Icelander to be found. Uh, Apart from visits home to care for his ailing father and to provide for his wife and kids, and I suppose to produce his kids, Ail's mostly been at sea or abroad during his adult life. He's not so much an Icelander as an embodiment of a set of Icelandic traits. Mm. And his author, I think, seems less interested in Iceland as a place than in Iceland as a kind of identity trait. Ail's behavior and personality are pretty close to a distillation of the saga version of the early Icelandic self-image. A rugged, uncompromising, hardscrabble man who spends most of his life being defined by his opposition to the Norwegian crown. I mean, I don't want to derail things before we get started, but it does it well, does seem a, like we're a little bit late to get us, you know. I, okay, but it does seem like Ale is crafted as a socio-political statement as much as he is an individual. Oh, yes. I mean, he's successful as an individual, uh, but he's also successful as an avatar for a certain kind of Icelandic identity. I, I think yeah, absolutely. And anytime I teach Ale Saga, one of the main things we talk about is Ale kind of as this representative of an Icelandic identity, at least mm-hmm. one that the author is trying to promote. Um, right. But, uh, you know, that's something that I think we can get into more detail about later, uh, especially when we do our kind of review of the saga, our, our sure. judgments. Uh, for now, we have to get to know Ale's new life with his family. 
because he and Asgard have had a family, John, mm-hmm. which Ale has largely not been around for. But let's meet him. Oh, no. If you start seeing cats in the cradle, I, I can't promise I won't cry. Ooh, that's tempting. But uh, but no, I, I was just setting up the preview, if that's okay. Oh, okay. Well, fine. Carry on, then. With Ale settling into family life on his farm, we pause for a quick look around Borgafjord, where things are getting heated between Lambi Thorson and some escaped Irish slaves. Meanwhile, Ale's family continues to expand as his daughters marry into good families. And though the future looks bright for his sons, Baldvar and Gunnar, their lives are tragically cut short, sending Ale into a deep depression. Shutting himself off from everyone, Ale prepares himself for death until he finds solace in the embrace of poetry. Back in Norway, the political grounds shift once again, raising Ale's friend Arnbjorn to new heights. This earns the great Arnbjorn a special praise poem from the greatest warrior poet in all of Iceland. Unfortunately, Arnbjorn's rise is followed quickly by a fall. And as Ale grows older, he finds himself unable to travel and forced to live vicariously through the stories of men who visit him at Borg. One such traveler, a clever but troublesome poet called Einar Skatlagam, soon finds himself exchanging more than travel tales with Ale Skatlagamsi. What gift from Einar prompts Ale to wrath? How is Arnbjorn like a bearskin rug by the fireplace? What will Lombi Thorison do about those pesky Irish slaves? And what happens when you chew dulse after trying to starve yourself to death? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Ale Saga, chapter 78 to 81. So, not our most uplifting episode, maybe? Well, I mean, Ale's reached that age when life stops giving him things and starts taking them away. That's profound. And, uh... From the Gospel of Henry Jones, Jr., I believe. It's you, you good old Catholic child. You, you know your scripture, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> so, Ale's in for some heartbreak this time. Yeah. But we're not covering too many pages, so with any luck, we'll keep this one short. Short and tragic. That's how we like it. All right, shall we? After you. Part 42. Won't you be my neighbor? Timely. So, Ale has once again come home to Iceland, and this time he means to stay. Well, cats, cradles, and silver spoons and all that. Ale's been away a long time. You promised you wouldn't sing it. I didn't sing it, I just said it. He's got a lot of family waiting for him at Borgafjord. Yeah, and there's good news and bad news when it comes to Ale's family. Uh, But it's not just his own kids he's got to get used to. A lot has changed in the district around Borg starting with having to learn a whole new list of neighbors. Yeah. Ale's been gone a long time, and an entire generation has turned over while he was gone. Several sagas have been there. Uh, In fact, two generations have turned over at some farms. Yes, exactly. So so the basic story here is that the settlers who came to Iceland in the time of Ale's father, Skotlagrim, have all died off. The district is now in the hands of their descendants, and we're going to meet a few of them. Uh, well, we don't, we don't really need to meet all of them, do we? I mean, no, probably not. Uh, some of them aren't going to be relevant until our next episode or not at all. 
Uh, so we'll just deal with them as and when they come up. Uh, but right. the important thing is to understand that all these new people are being introduced. I think we're being set up to think of Ale as increasingly a man of a different age. Well, I mean, actually, at, at this point, we're not really thinking about Ale at all. <laughs> this chapter, <laughs> which is chapter 78 in the Scudder translation, it's not about Ale. Yeah, no, it's, well, it's been a while since he's had a chance to get off stage for a minute. It's like a Beckett play for him most of the time. Well, okay. Uh, but the, the point is that we need to catch up on the changes that are going on in Iceland. Mm-hmm. Most of the sagas aren't great at registering the passing of years, really. So, you know. Yeah, I think this one's actually a little bit more aware of it than most. Uh, not necessarily more accurate, uh, but more aware of the passage of time. As we said last time, there is a sense that Ale is growing and maturing over the course of the story. But when he gets home and we're suddenly told that an entire generation of Icelanders has died of old age, well, you realize that he spent most of his adult life outside of Iceland. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, uh, now, there are a couple of people in this new generation that we need to meet. A few, sure. Yeah, but let's control ourselves. That's what I do. I control myself. Uh, all right. So <laughs> for starters, there's a man named Kettle Gufa, who's one of the newer settlers in the area. He's a real Gufa ball, oh, if you ask me. Oh, boy. But no, you're restraining yourself beautifully here. Yeah, I'm trying because I really want to talk about this guy's name. I, I just did. But uh, if you, you know, if you want to just. Gufa means steam. This guy's name, to my great and lasting delight, is Kettle Steam. <laughs> It's a happy little bilingual accent. Oh, it's a delight is what it is. Kettle steam. I know. Have we not really run into kettle steam before? No. He arrived after Ale's family, and his part in the story doesn't come up till now. Really? Well, does he invite everyone over for a cup of tea? Uh, I can only hope. Well, all right. Uh, there's just so much in the saga. Kettle Steam. Uh, we could spend hours on him. Uh, let's try. Well, I don't know about hours. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just expended a, a fair as number much of we minutes. Um, yeah. So let's try to keep this simple. Uh, Kettle Steam and his family of herbal teas settle in the area, and Kettle brings a group of Irish slaves with him. Irish slaves. Yes. It takes a few years for Kettle to find a place to live since the area is fully settled. He sort of bounces around renting different places. He ends up building a temporary home not too far from Ale's place in Borgafjord and then moving west to Breithefjord in search of a more permanent lodging. Now, meanwhile, there's a nearby farm called Lambastather, which is run by Thord Lambeson and his son Lambi Thordarson. Sure. Lombi is a big, strong lad who's trying to make his way in the world. So when the season comes for attending the All Thing, well, Lombi goes too. Well, the All Thing is the place to go if you're looking to make connections, find a spouse, or make business deals. And Lombi might well be after all of those things. Mm-hmm. But his father's more settled in his ways, and he stays home. Well, I mean, he's a middle-aged guy. A man reaches a certain age, Andy, and he, he wants to sit comfortably at home and enjoy his beer in peace. How is your beer, by the way, John? Oh, it's lovely. Got some good stuff. And you can go to hell for suggesting that I'm old, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're just a man of a certain age, John. Not old. Just a man of a certain age. I am that. And uh, given that you just spent most of the evening tweeting about how incompetent I am at computers, I think we know exactly (laughs) what age that is. Uh, So so. one night, uh, while most of the big men of the district are away, there's trouble at Kettle Steam's place. I mentioned before that Kettle has a group of Irish slaves. Yes, you did. And I said, Irish slaves. Hmm." It probably won't shock you to hear that the Irish slaves aren't super happy about their lot in life. Well, slaves tend not to be. Yeah. Right. They were they were captured back in Ireland and maybe. Well, I mean, or even captured somewhere else. 
That's true, yeah. The Irish were sailors too, and they turned up in surprising places. Well, uh, wherever these guys were caught, they were probably freighted across Europe to Kiev or someplace similar and sold in the Slavic markets. Or maybe Kettle just captured them himself. Or that. And now they've been dragged to this island in the middle of nowhere by an Icelander. Still not a happy situation for them either way. And one night, they decide they've had enough. The slaves break out and are led away from the farm by four men, uh, four of the Irishmen, named Cory, Scory, Thormod, and Svart. Uh, would it not be too much trouble to make sure that they all rhymed? <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's, it's at moments like this when you really get a sense of the way Tolkien raided the saga's cupboards when he was writing The Hobbit, yeah. right? Yeah. Somehow, somehow names like Cory and Scory and Thormod ring a bell. The, they're the cousins of the dwarves who raided the Lonely Mountain, right. obviously. <laughs> I'm actually reading The Hobbit to my kids right now. Oh, are you? Uh, yeah, my daughter's reading The Hobbit herself. That's great. Uh, all right, so uh, Cory and Scory and Nori and Dory and Ori are on the loose and looking for a little payback against the people who enslaved them. Understandable. Why yeah. wouldn't they? I mean, it is, but I have to say the saga doesn't really present it that way. No, they're actually treated more like escaped felons. Definitely. Not terribly sympathetic to the slaves. No, here. our author is not sympathetic to the plight of the Ories. No. Uh, and the, the narrative makes it easy to think of them as villains because the first thing they do is raid the nearby farm at Lombastather, where Thord Lombason is trying to enjoy his quiet evening pint. They barricade the doors of the farmhouse and set it on fire, wow. and then steal the farm's horses and ride off with the things they managed to steal from the sheds on Thord's property. Hmm. Uh, do they know that they're on an island? Well, I mean, they have amphibious horses. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. They just ride around the coast for yeah, a while. Yeah. Uh, any, any, any chance of a body count from the farmhouse burning no, here? I'm afraid they not. Move this up. Yeah, no, no. no. We know Thor mm. dies in the fire, but it just says that, quote, all his farmhands die in the fire wow. with him. That's disappointing. Yeah, especially for the farmhands. <laughs> right. So so in the morning, Thord's son, Lambi, returns to the farm, having seen the smoke and flames, but uh, he's too late to save his father. Yeah, or the farmhands. Yes, all the farmhands are I gone. mean, it's important to think of them once in a while. It is. So Lambi rides off after the Irish Ories, and people from the neighboring farms join the hunt. Mm -hmm. And what follows is a bit of cold-blooded revenge. The Ories split up and all find different hiding spots, but Lambi and his friends track them down one by one. This is another side quest in a, it is. a, a video game. It is. You've got to find all of the find, Ories. Right. Find the, find the murderers. Yeah. Uh, they find Cory on a small hill and kill him on the spot. Scory and Thormod swim out to small rocky islands, but Lambi just gets some boats and catches up with them out there. Yeah. And so on and so on until every one of the Irish slaves is hunted down and killed. And this is where we get the only reason for this entire episode to be included in Ale Saga. Each of the Irishmen who are killed get the spot where they die named for them. Cory is killed at Coroness, Thormod at Thormod's Rock, Scory at Scory Island, and so on. So this is another example of toponymy. You're right. And, and saga authors tend to like this stuff a lot. Um, yeah. Our author's trying to name everything in the area and make it part of a story. Right. And meanwhile, things are a bit awkward for Kettle Steam, who, remember, brought these Irishmen to the area in the first place. Um, he eventually realizes, I think quite reasonably, that he can't continue to live in this neighborhood. He gives up his farm and moves west into Braithefjord into an area that gets named Gufadal, uh, Steam Valley, after him. 
Top of Nimix again. There yep. you go. Yep. Now, this the is the whole, whole reason thing. to introduce this guy, right? I know. I think this is what it's about, right? This is a whole thing we can wonder about. There's some pretty lazy naming going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, exa- for example, uh, Scory's name is essentially Scary, which is a small rock island. Mm-hmm. And he gets a well, small rocky island named after him. Is the name Scory attested in Irish annals anywhere? Uh, I have not got a complete record of the Irish annals to hand. Um, mm. So I'm going to say no. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, and I mean, it's not hard to imagine how a name like Steam Valley might come about on a volcanic island. Oh, yeah. There's plenty uh, of places with don't, a lot of steam. Right. You don't Iceland. have to have a guy named Kettle Steam running around naming anything after himself. Yeah. And, and Svart as well. Mm-hmm. Svart means dark or black. It's a name that shows up in several sagas, often on men who are either slaves or hired killers. Or both. Or both, yes. But again, I, I think we're giving these killer Ori's a lot more attention than the narrative asks us to. But what else do we do here at uh, Saga Thing? So what else What else do we have in this chapter? Well, there's a man named Grimm, who's the son of Sverting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also future law speaker of Iceland, so that's a big deal. Oh, come on. Give it up. You know what I'm looking for here. I, I don't, you know. I, I really don't. What do you, what? Grimm, come on. Grimm is the brother mm-hmm. of Ronvig Svertingadotter. The mother of Scofty, the law speaker. Shifty Scofty, the law speaker. Your thingman, yes, yes. And my thingman, yes. Mm, but that's not really the point here. The point is that Grimm has fallen in love. Well, I mean, we can agree to disagree about the importance of Scofty, law speaker, being in the family. But tell us about the object of young Grimm's affections. Okay. Well, quite a while back, remember, Ale delivered the news of his brother Thorolf's death to Thorolf's widow, Asgard. Mm-hmm. And then, with some prompting from Arnbjorn, Eil confessed his own love for Asgard and eventually married her. All of this is familiar, yes. Do you remember who else they brought back with them from Norway after that marriage? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, this would be Eil's niece and stepdaughter, Thordis. Mm-hmm. Grimm's fallen in love with Thordis. Exactly. And in the years that have passed, Thordis has grown up to be a beautiful and accomplished woman. Eil loves her like his own child, so he's happy to find her a good match. And Grimm's family is quite prominent and important in Iceland, so there's no question that it is a good match. And there's that connection to Skafti again. Absolutely. And Eil gives Thordis her inheritance from her father, which is quite a lot of wealth, mm-hmm. so the match is an equal one. Thordis and Grimm live at Mosfell together and remain on close terms with Eil and Asgard. Yeah, it's a rare heartwarming story in this saga. Well, don't get used to it. That's you know, not how it ends up. <laughs> um, I think it is nice that, you know, we it's never really addressed head on, but that Ail does take responsibility for Thordis. Um, oh, yeah. It's not always the case that uh, step parents in the sagas treat their uh, their new children well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, there's a bit of a bit of uh, Thorolf Mark II in her and he sees well, that. I think um, I think it's Armand Jakobsen who says that um, that Thordis embodies the two great loves of Ail's mm-hmm. life, right? Thorolf that and is, Asgard, right? That makes it, sense. It, yeah, and and so she, you know, and also she doesn't have Ail's kind of uh, really kind of bully negative streak right. in her. You know, right. she's got Thorolf's charm and Asgard's beauty. Right. She's well. She's from that sunny side of the family. That's right. Um, well, in addition to Thoris, Ail and Asgard have five children of their own. Good for them. Two daughters named Thorgird and Bera, and three sons: Bavar, Gunnar, and Thorsten. A nice, big, promising young family. Absolutely. They're all good matches for the young single folks around the area. 
Uh, remember, these are the grandchildren of Scotlagrim Kveldofsen, so they're really the main settlement family in the district. Mm-hmm. So Thordis isn't the only one with suitors coming around. Oh, no. Uh, Bera and Thorgard get married soon after Ail's return. Uh, Bera marries Ozer Evenson, who's the scion of a well-off family, and Thorgard marries Olaf Hoskelson of Dalar. Now, that one needs a moment's consideration. You mind pausing for him? <laughs> yes, it does. I wasn't yeah. sure whether you'd spotted that link. Olaf Hoskelson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so listeners who have a memory for names might recall that Njal Saga starts with the story of two half-brothers named Hoskuld and Hrut. Yeah, the saga was more interested in uh, Hrut Heldolfsson's story, so uh-huh. it's understandable if Hoskuld doesn't ring a bell. But remember, these were half-brothers. Hoskuld was the son of Kol of Dalar, usually yeah. called Dalakol. But that's not why Hoskuld was important in Saga. No, uh, Hoskuld had a daughter named Halgerth, who was famous for her long legs and thief's eyes. I remember her. Yes, So indeed. this is the same Halgerth who would go on to have three husbands killed and become a, a lifelong antagonist of Njal Thorgerson and his family. Yes, and Olaf is her brother. And now he's Ail's son-in-law. Yeah, so if we put these sagas together, we have to imagine that Halgerth, Gunnar Hamunderson, and Ail could have attended the same feasts and gatherings for a number of years. <laughs> that would be quite a party. <laughs> so many, many ways to make a mortal enemy there. That's a party to you? Well, it keeps things interesting. If you're looking Fair. for a good saga, it's right there. <laughs> right, absolutely. Okay, so Ail's daughters and stepdaughter are all happily married into good families. But uh, what are the sons of Ail up to, John? I think we should um, find out. Yeah, remember when I said there was good news and bad news? Mm. Part 43. When Sorrows Come. So... Ail and Asgard have three sons, Balvar, Gunnar, and Thorsten. Now, he didn't name any of his kids after his brother Thorolf, which is a little yeah, bit I mean, disappointing. Yeah. Okay, but that's a name with a lot of history behind it at this point. That's true. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd want to saddle my kid with being the third generation of doomed Thorolfs. Besides, <laughs> this is the one that will make it. Right, right. And he didn't name any of his kids after Skotlagrim either. Well... I think Ale and his father have a rather complicated <laughs> relationship. Fair. Uh, uh, in fact, many of my students chose to write about the uh, harsh relationship that uh, <laughs> almost as if Ale is the man he is because he was abused by his father or ignored by him. Well, I mean, they were very there's a lot that goes into who Ale is. <laughs> <laughs> they were very moved by all of that. Fair anyway, uh, so these three children, they uh, they are both var. Gunnar and Thorsten, right? Yes, but don't get too attached to all of them. Oh, no. Uh, I know. Baldvar is Ale's favorite, and apparently that's because he reminds Ale of his brother. Yeah, the author describes Baldvar as big and strong like Ale and Thorolf had been at his age, and exceptionally handsome and promising. Right. Uh, and like his father and uncle, Baldvar is the restless type. So when Ale has a ship full of timber bought at a market, he uh, sends an eight-oared ship to pick up the lumber, and young Bolivar goes with six servants to pick up the load. But they get a late start, there's a sudden gale while they're at sea, and the ship capsizes. Mm. All seven men are drowned, and their bodies wash ashore the next day. And this happens shortly after the death of Ail's second son, Gunnar. Right. Now, we don't really get too much information about Gunnar's life or death. He died of an illness, is all we really learn. Uh, but regardless of how it happens, this double tragedy is a lot to take. Well, Ail's first reaction to the loss of Balthar is actually somewhat practical. 
Yeah. He rides to the shore to look for the body, and when he finds Bolthvar's body, he brings it to Digrenes, where he buries Bolthvar alongside his father, Scott Legrim. I mean, actually, that's kind of his second reaction. Uh, we are told that when he first gets the news of Bolthvar's death, he swells so much mm. that his clothes burst off his body. So there's a pause while he gets dressed again, I guess. Right, I assume so, yeah, but that's not the point. Uh, this is a trope of saga literature, right? A person swelling or pouring blood from their ears as they struggle to control their emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you remember, Thorhall Asgrimson and Njal Saga did that. Oh, yes, yeah. He was the foster son who Njal taught all his lawyer skills to. Yeah, and when Thorhall got word that Njal and his sons had been killed in a hall burning, Thorhall was so overcome with fury that blood burst out of his ears and he passed out. So this is a manly reaction, don't you think? I mean, mm-hmm. Thorhall apologizes for his behavior when he wakes up, but there are extenuating circumstances. Sure. Should we read this as something Ail's ashamed of? Because Ail's not Thorhall. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, first of all, Ail's never been a traditional Icelandic man in those terms. Right? He's generally one to wear his heart on his sleeve. Besides, the whole bursting clothes thing is a device, right? It's a literary device. Uh, he's controlling his emotions, but they're too big for him. And his body swells with the effort of controlling himself. Yeah. A, a better parallel might be the reactions of the Ragnarsons when they learned of Ragnar Lothbrok's death. Oh, yeah. yeah. None of them lose control of their emotions, but they each show the physical strain of that self-control. Exactly. Yeah. No, we're being invited to admire his self-control. Right? Maybe even to see and approve of his emotional state. I mean, it would actually be much more disturbing if he didn't react emotionally to the death of his two sons. And Mm -hmm. and anyway, this isn't any more extreme a reaction than he showed after his brother's death. That's true, but Ail's next move is a little more extreme. Uh, He goes into his bedroom, locks the door, and lays down on the bed. And there he stays, with no food or drink, for a day and a night, and then another, and then another. So Ail's trying to kill himself. Maybe he starve himself, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's still ale, and so no one dares to disturb him because they know what happens when you disturb an angry berserk. But Asgard, his wife, finally realizes somebody has to do something, so she sends a messenger to ask their daughter Thorgerd to come at once. And she does, but mm-hmm. when she arrives at the family farm at Borg, she turns down her mother's offer of food, and she says rather loudly, Mm-hmm. I've had no evening meal, nor will I eat again, until I go to join Freya in her hall. I know of no better course of action than my father's, and I do not want to live on after my father and brothers are dead. Right, just to underline, all of that is in a very loud voice. Yes. The, yeah. Exactly the kind of voice that would carry through a closed bedroom door. Yeah, that kind. Yeah, so Thorgerd is up to something. Well, I, I think we're going to have to say it. Thorgerd has a cunning plan. Excellent. Yeah, this isn't one of those uh, messy, baldric plans doomed for failure. <laughs> this one's good. This is not Narfi with the sausage. No. She bangs on the door of Ail's bed closet and says, Father, open the door. I want both of us to go the same way. And he does. He lets her in and locks the door again, and they both lay down on separate beds. And after a while, Ail says, You're, you're a good daughter. You, you've shown great love in coming here to follow your father. How can I be expected to live in such grief? And then they're quiet again for a while, but Ail eventually speaks up again. <clears throat> what, what, what are you doing, daughter? Are, are you chewing something? Did you bring enough for the whole class? No, it's not gum. <laughs> no, no, she says, I'm chewing dulse because it makes me feel worse. Otherwise, I might live too long. Oh, 
Is it bad for you? Oh, it's very bad for you. Do you want some? Eh, what difference does it make? Mm, it, it is making me thirsty, though. So, I don't actually know if people know what dulse is. If only there were some recorded aural medium through which you could explain it, John. All right, all right, all right. A, a cast of some kind. Yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, <laughs> dulse, smartass, is a seaweedy type of long-leafed algae. Um, it's it's reddish. Um, it can be eaten fresh, dried, or cooked. Uh, it's a snack food in Iceland. And it's been eaten by the peoples of the North Atlantic since at least the beginning of the Middle Ages. And it's got a bunch of different flavors as well. Uh, there's a group yeah. of researchers in America who found that there's even a strain of dulse that tastes like kind of like bacon when it's cooked up. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, that's delightful. Yeah. If we were the Internet and this were five years ago, I'd be very excited by that news. <laughs> uh, do you have dulse by you, Andy? It's available here in New England. I sometimes bring it into class for my students to taste when we get to this part of Ale Saga. Well, I mean, you're one of the peoples of the North Atlantic, so that makes sense. But uh, mm. in, here in Mississippi, I have not seen dulse. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I haven't huh. seen it. Yeah. Well, the other thing about dulse, I mean, two things, really. One is that dulse is almost insanely good for humans. Well, let's not go crazy, John. It's the ocean and right. fish pee in the ocean. They do other <laughs> things, <up>. too. <laughs> I mean, at a biological level, uh, dulse is pretty high in protein. It has a wide variety of vitamins, and it has all the trace minerals humans need in their diet. And traces of fish poop. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, why do you keep saying humans like you're studying us, though? That's <laughs> disturbing me. I, I can't tell you that until I finish my report. <laughs> uh, the, the point is that dulse is a superfood. Uh, it's basically a multivitamin that actually works. And it can keep a person alive for a long time, even in the absence of other food. And Thorgerd knows that. Uh, right. Well, and that's my second point, right, is that Ale knows that too. Mm-hmm. Or at least he knows it's not a suicide aid. I mean, people eat it all the time. He even, uh, when, when Thorgerd says she's getting thirsty, Ale grumbles, well, that happens when you eat dulse. <laughs> He's familiar with this stuff. Yeah, and then Thorgerd calls for a drink of water, but the servant brings her a horn of what turns out to be milk. Mm. As it, almost as if it was planned. Almost. And she gets Ale to drink some of that. And as he's drinking, she says, oh, we've been tricked. This is milk. What What? Right. what happened? <laughs> and upon hearing that news, Ale bites through the edge of the drinking horn, yes. which I don't fully understand. But it's a great character moment. Yeah, he, he's not being fooled by all of this, is he? I, I, don't, I don't imagine he is. I, I mean... I don't think so either, um, but he's definitely showing his anger by biting through the, the horn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Thorgard's plan shows him the love and support that he needs, and that's enough to help bring him back from the worst of his depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, but she also needs to find a way to keep him occupied, and she suggests writing a poem about Bavar. Yeah, and she manages to get in a pretty sharp dig at her living brother as well, and she says, Yes, she does. You must write such a poem because I doubt Thorsten would ever compose a poem for Bavar. And it would be unseemly if his memory was not honored. That's kind of rough on Thorsten. Well, I mean, he's not eloquent, I guess, is what she's saying. He's not the poet mm-hmm. that her father is. And actually, that's kind of the thing, is she's she's goading Ale into composing poetry. Um, right. So, uh, and we're going to get to Thorsten uh, probably in our next episode. We'll, we'll talk about him a bit. Yeah. Uh, so, now, Ale says he can't think to write a poem for Bavar either because of his sorrow. But soon enough, he's busy composing, mm-hmm. and he eventually writes a long-form poem about the loss of his sons. And this poem is called the Sonatorik, uh, and it's it's over two dozen stanzas, and each of them mm-hmm. explores the sorrow of this loss. 
It's an important poem for Icelandic literature generally. Uh, Peter Hallberg called this poem the earliest truly subjective poem in the Northern European tradition. It, it's a strange and beautiful poem, and it, it's pretty raw. Yeah. Um, as we said, Ail's not one to keep his feelings hidden away, especially in his poetry. So he's coming to grips not only with his grief, he's also calling Odin to account for having betrayed him and lamenting the seeming end of his family line. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. Yeah. So uh, how, do, how do you want to tackle this? We can't read the whole thing. I mean, there's a bunch, and I don't think we can do it full justice. So I, I think we just do as usual. Each of us picks out a bit of the poem, and we talk about it. All right. So uh, you're on the clock first, John. What do you got? Uh, yeah. So this isn't original or anything, because I want to talk about verses one and two. All right. You're crowding it. Two verses? Well, I'm, I mean, they're kind of a single If you're going to do two verses, I'm going to do two verses. That's just the way it's going to be. All right. Okay. All right. So uh, yeah, I want to. I want us to cover something from the middle of the poem, but we should probably okay. explain the overall structure as well. So why don't we start there? Now, this is, uh, the Sonotark is a, an elegant poem structurally. It begins with a claim that Ail's grief will keep him from being able to compose properly, but that's more of a creed accord than an actual thesis statement. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there with the... Uh, it was it was creed accord, wasn't it? Yeah, there's no need for that sort of thing. What, what, <laughs> what kind of podcast is this, John? Uh, it's, it's a cry from the heart. Is that better? That's much better, yes. Okay. Uh, it's it's not an analysis of the poem, right, uh, is my point, which is actually quite tightly structured. It's, it's a relatively mm. simple metrical form, though. This is what's called a kvidrhauter meter, uh, which employs shortened lines and a somewhat simplified set of line points. Sort yeah. of like a, a ballad verse in English, really, but with alliteration mm. rather than end rhymes. Yeah, it's an interesting analogy. I like that. Um, so the theme of the poem is obviously loss and Ail's grief and frustration at his helplessness. As I said, the first few stanzas introduce Ail's belief that his sorrow will make it impossible for the poem to be made at all, and connects Ail's current loss of his sons to his lost ancestors. His parents. Right. Well, their ancestors. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he moves into a into blaming a personified sea for the death of Bavar, and rages at his inability to seek a just revenge against the sea gods for his loss. And at about the halfway point of the poem, Ail connects his thoughts to the loss of Thorolf, whose death he still regrets and mourns, and then to Gunnar, his second son, who, as we said, died of illness. And in the final few verses, he turns his thoughts to his complex relationship with Odin. He blames Odin for the death of his sons, but he recognizes that Odin, as the god of poetry, has also given him the means to mourn their deaths properly. And finally, he contemplates his own death, saying that he will welcome his end when it comes, and meet it without regret. Yeah, that's a lot in a couple of dozen ver. Yeah, that's a lot in a couple dozen verses. Yeah, it's pretty packed, and it's beautifully constructed. It's a absolutely, great poem. Absolutely. Yeah. Now the move from one idea to the next mimics the disordered thoughts of a grief-stricken man, but the disorder never carries over into the actual poetry, which moves smoothly and clearly. Mm-hmm. The image ultimately is of a man who's lost too much and cannot recover, but who determines finally to press on anyway with his broken heart. It's good stuff. It is, yeah. Now, as we said, we can't hope to do justice to the, the entire thing, uh, so we'll just cherry pick a couple of spots to focus on. Uh, which verses did you want to cover? Yeah, um, I wanted to cover verses eight and nine, and this is coming from the Bernard Scudder translation. If by sword I might avenge that deed, the brewer of waves would soon meet his end. Smite the wind's brother that dashes the bay. Do battle against the sea god's wife. Yet I felt I lacked the might to seek justice against the killer of ships. For it is clear to all eyes, 
how an old man lacks helpers. Now, these two stanzas offer some insight into the core of Ale's despair. As we've seen time and time again in the sagas, and especially in Ale Saga, any killing of a family member or close friend demands some sort of justice. Right. I mean, the sagas are practically structured around the feuds that result from that pursuit of justice. Exactly. And the victim's family always has two recourses open to them. They could seek compensation for the death in court or pursue blood vengeance. And in Ailes family, they usually choose blood vengeance. <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes that's the most satisfying form of justice. Right. But not always. Right? The case of the two Thorolfs is a good example of that. When the first Thorolf is slain by King Harald, Kveldulf and Skotlagrim refuse to leave Norway until they get vengeance for the killing. And we saw this way back in chapter 27, mm -hmm. um, when Kveldulf and Skotlagrim attacked and killed the brothers, uh, Halvard Travelhard and his brothers Sigtrig Travelquick. Right. Uh, these were King Harald's kinsmen and his favorite henchmen. Yeah, and remember, they also killed Harald's cousins, the young sons of Guthorm, in that ambush. That's right, that's right. So for the death of Thorolf, Kveldulf and Skotlagrim killed Harold's two cousins and his favorite henchmen, also his kinsmen. Right, plus uh, something like 50 men on Halvard and Sigtrig's ships. So, yeah. Yeah, and thus they balanced the Ledger of Justice, John. Uh, sort of. <laughs> right? I mean, it was pretty clear that what they really wanted was to crack Harold Fairhair's skull. Yeah. But that wasn't going to happen, so this is the next best thing. Uh, but seeking blood was not always the way they seek justice, as you said. Right? So, so when Thorolf Mark II dies in battle fighting for King Athelstan and Brunenborough, Ale pursues compensation rather than blood. Well, well, kind of. But remember, before he seeks formal compensation from King Athelstan, he first settles affairs with Earl Adils, who was Thorolf's actual slayer. Now, that's, that's a fair point. Ale also kills everyone in Earl Adils' company yeah. by pursuing them through the forest until every last one is dead. And so in some ways, we can say that the Ledger of Justice kind of balances out, right, with Thorolf II equaling the life of the Earl and all of his men. But that's also a battle, and the rules aren't quite the same in battle. So You're right. Ale might feel that there's still some debt owing for his brother's life. And that debt is satisfied by the significant compensation that he gets from Athelstan. Right. Now, Thorolf was a valuable man. Indeed, he was. And there are any number of examples like this in the sagas. The key mm -hmm. here, the reason this, for this brief digression, is just to understand that balancing the ledger of justice in the form of blood or in the form of money is central to Ale's culture and Ale's worldview. Right. So in addition to the incredible grief he feels for the loss of his sons, he's lost one to the ocean and one to illness, Ale's despair is deepened by his inability to seek compensation for their deaths. Yeah, there's no one to attack, no one to pay for these deaths. Yes, exactly. And Ale, who already feels helpless as an old man, can't seek justice against the waves, right, which he calls the killer of ships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's quite striking. I, I love mm -hmm. it. And there's a lot more to say about it. Yeah, Ale's grief and despair at his inability to avenge the death of his sons actually echoes that of King Hrethel in Beowulf, whose sorrow at the accidental slaying of his son, Herebald, at the hands of his own brother, Hathkun, so consumes him that he wastes away into death. Oh, yeah. No, it's even better, in that same section of Beowulf, mm -hmm. Hrethel's sorrow is compared to that of an old man watching his son sway on the gallows. Yes, yes, exactly. The old man. And so the old man, left with no options, no ability to avenge his sons, gives in to his sorrow. Mm -hmm. He takes to his bed and composes songs about his loss and the distress he feels. Until he dies, which is what mm -hmm. Ail's trying to do here. Right. This is his song. Yeah. Yeah. There's also another example that's worth exploring if you're up for it. 
Uh, depends on what it is. Well, I mean, there, there's this is an interesting analog for Ale's grief, one that's a bit closer to the world of the sagas and Ale's poetry. All right. You've got me interested. And it's also appropriate because we're quite near the winter solstice, a time when <laughs> my family usually gathers around a candle to hear me tell the story. Uh, okay, yes, you're talking about Baldur's death. Absolutely, yes. Now, remember, no one was allowed to seek vengeance for Baldur's death, and mm-hmm. Odin felt the loss of his son far more deeply than any other. Mm-hmm. According to the Poetic Edda, he doesn't wash his hands or comb his hair until Baldur's killer was brought to the funeral pyre. Yeah, it's an interesting mythological analog to Ale's story, right? Um, and that's fitting because of the abundance of references and metaphors drawn yeah. from Norse mythology in the poem. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, and there's a lot more we could say about this. Um, there's there's some interesting articles about it. Uh, Joseph Harris is one of the ones that makes these connections. So I'll post links yep. to some of these articles with uh, with this episode in the show notes. Great. But uh, yeah. yeah, we should really get back to the saga at this point, shouldn't we? Yeah. I, you know, if we really want to digress into this, we could do a saga brief on it. Uh, what do you think? One more for the list? I think you probably should shut your mouth. <laughs> it's actually tempting. I, I kind of want to, but... We've got enough on our plate, John. I, I'd, I'd mm-hmm. rather focus on the briefs we've actually got planned for the new year and not add to the list all willy-nilly with a death poem. Yeah, no, no, no. Besides, uh, tempting though it is, we've got new worlds to conquer. This saga has to end sometime. Of course, we're not going to get done if we don't keep moving. So back to the saga, Fair. right? Uh, you wanted to talk about the beginning of the poem and you never even read the, yeah. <laughs> read yeah. the verses. Uh, probably we should have started there, but what the hell. Yeah. Uh, so the first couple of verses begin with Ale offering a kind of reflection on the poetic art. sluggish for me to move my poem scales ponderous to raise the god's prize is beyond my grasp tough to drag out from my mind's haunts since heavy sobbing is the cause how hard to pour forth from the mind's roots the prize that Frigg's progeny found born of old from the world of giants, unflawed, which Bragi inspired with life on the craft of the Watcher Dwarf. Nice. So, right away, Ale is positioning himself as a man whose gifts are inadequate to the task before him. As we said before, he's a grieving father, and the shock of his loss has him struggling to order his thoughts. Yeah, and that's all pretty standard. And and really, it's, it's a fair claim to be too emotionally exhausted to compose verses. He's just lost two kids, so no, I, I mean, imagine his tongue's a little bit slow. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm interested in the way he envisions his struggle, though. His imagery here is a muddle of internal and external striving. He's seeking inspiration from the mead of Bragi, from the, the god's prize, which is out of his grasp. But at the same time, the words he says he needs are trapped inside of him, Mm -hmm. in his tongue and in his mind's roots. So the poetry is a kind of external prize, which is in keeping with the Norse myth stuff that we were talking about in the last episode. Yeah. And once again, there's there's those references to Bragi's gift and to Kvasar's mead. So Mm -hmm. this links pretty well to what we've seen before. And then internally, what? He's blocked by his grief from accessing his gift of poetry. Yeah, so internally he's got, I mean, well, first he's, 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 he's not hiding his light under a bushel, right? His point is that he does have the gift of the gods in his mind and tongue. 
And he's not shy about that. That's something that he develops over the course of the entire poem. Mm -hmm. But I think it's significant that he talks about the poetry as residing in him. Right? There's a certain amount of the oh for a muse of fire stuff going on here. Yeah. Uh, a typical kind of calling on divine inspiration. But Ale clearly positions himself as the fount from which poetry flows. Mm -hmm. right. You were saying a minute ago that, uh, was it Hallberg? Yeah, Peter Hallberg. Yeah. Right. He's saying that this is a subjective poem. It's also, in some ways, a deliberate break from that older idea of poetry as an external gift. Ale's struggling because the source of his talent is himself. And in his current emotional state, he lacks the clarity that allows him to turn inspiration into finished works of poetic art. But that clarity, that ability is recognized as a skill, right? a talent rather than a gift. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's also interesting to pair this with the idea of the swelling, right? That he can't yeah. express his grief at all, mm -hmm. and so he swells. Um, but the poetry, once he can get his tongue loosened, the poetry is a way of expressing that emotion. We've seen that elsewhere right. in, the, in the saga where um, when Ail's feeling something, usually after battle or something terrible happening, he needs to express his emotion through mm -hmm. poetry. And that's, the, that's almost like the release valve for this, yes. that tension that's building up inside of him. Um, but you were setting up something really interesting which is the uh, something about how Ailes' uh, poetry is a gift or a talent, but there's a, there's a distinction between those two things, and Ailes oh, okay, playing yeah. with that no. here, right? Right. So I, I need to explain the difference here, right? Uh, this culture thinks very much in terms of gift exchange. Right? When Ail calls poetry the God's gift, he doesn't mean an innate ability; he means a gift, mm -hmm. right? Something given, right, to strengthen or establish good relations, or as a show of open-handed generosity. Right, something in the possession of someone else that is given to you. Ale begins it with a nod to that idea of the gift of the gods' generosity when it comes to poetry, but then he moves quickly away from that into the idea that poetry is internal, a product of his own body and mind. Which means that poetry has two related characteristics for Sonotaric. Uh, one, it's intrinsically rather than extrinsically generated. And two, it's a product of Ale's body and will. Which means, of course, that it's like a child. Mm -hmm. And so Ale sets up the poem to reflect on his lost children by balancing the poet and the father in himself. And both halves are yearning for a thing that is of themselves that they've lost and cannot find. Very well said. Mm. All right. So we, we're leaving a lot on the table here with the Sonatoric. Um, there's a lot we could say about it, but we're going to go ahead and move on to the next chapter. And uh, recommend that you read the Sonotoric yourself. It's definitely Absolutely. worth reading. Um, the next chapter in Ale's life uh, is an interesting one. And it's the next major poem of the saga as well. We've got two big poems right back to back. Oh, good. This sounds like a fun rut to be stuck mm. in. Part 44. The Bear Whose Land the Birch Fears. All right. So... Even though Ailes retired and living on the family farm in Iceland, his BFF Arnbjorn is still out and about in the world. Mm -hmm. He's allied himself with the Norwegian king Harald Greycloak, his foster son. Uh, you'll remember he's the son of Eric Bloodaxe and Gunild. Right. Um, and that's been going pretty well for him. Harald Greycloak and his brothers, they've been at war for control of Norway with King Hauken, the guy who sent Ail in on the wild goose chase to Varmland in our last episode. That was a good time. Well, it was a lot sillier than poems about death and mourning, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But anyway, Hauken keeps beating the Eriksons in battle, but in a final battle in Hordaland, Hauken is fatally wounded 
and the Eriksons sort of win Norway by default. Hey, the best struggle for dynastic succession is the one you walk away from. Mm-hmm. Wise words. And since Arnbjorn is on the winning side, his stock is sky high in Norway. Mm-hmm. He is an advisor to the king and essentially the military commander of all of Norway. And he's still in possession of all his Fjordana lands, so he's super wealthy as well. It's nice that he's doing so well. Well, Eil thinks so too, and so he decides to write a poem in praise of Arnbjorn's career. A kind of living eulogy for his best friend. It's the best kind of eulogy. It is. I mean, it's better than the alternative. (laughs) At least he gets to hear it. Right. So, right on the heels of the last poem, we get... Arnbjörnakvida, a celebration of Arnbjorn. And thematically, this poem seems on the surface to be a very different animal than the last one. Yeah, I mean, it's a praise poem rather than a lament. It's mm-hmm. it's joyous and warm, where the last one was weighted and painful. Mm-hmm. And it treats the act of poetic creation as an easy affair. Yes. Uh, so should we map out the structure of this one? Yes. Um, So this is a fairly standard kind of praise poem. It begins with Eil saying what a pleasure this poem will be for his audience, Mm -hmm. since his greatest enjoyment as a poet is to sing the good qualities of his friends. And he moves from there into recounting the story of his visit to Eric Bloodaxe in England and Arnbjorn's support that led to the head price poem that we did several episodes ago. He then shifts focus to Arnbjorn, who stood at Eil's side and protected him in King Eric's court. And that moves to a broad set of conventional praises of Arnbjorn for his wealth, his steadfastness, his skill in war, and above all, his generosity. And then finally, he returns to a kind of a meta-commentary on the poem, calling it a memorial mound in poetry's field, which is lovely. That's quite an image. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, in some ways, this is more straightforward than Sonatotic. Uh, it's because it fits so well into the praise poem style. And that's a, that's a highly recognizable tradition with plenty of well-worn track. Yeah, so it's more an attempt to place Arnbjorn among the best and most worthy subjects of praise poetry than an attempt to break any new ground as a poet. Right, and as we said on the surface, there's not much to connect this poem with the last one, apart from the fact that they both appear one after the other in the saga. I think if we dig into it a bit, we can see this poem actually does a lot to draw a comparison with the Loss of Sons poem. Hmm, interesting. Well, I mean, the, the very first line of the poem is, I am quick to sing a nobleman's praises. Even right there, you can start to see how these two poems actually, they serve as reflections of one another. Here he's, right, right. I mean, yeah. that, that eager lightness is an obvious counterpoint to the, the grief-clouded difficulty of Ale's sluggish tongue in Sonatark. Yeah. And all the way through the poem, that theme of easy pleasure in the poet's task provides a kind of backbone to the poem. So in verse 15, Ale proclaims, The stuff of my praise is soon honed by my voice's plain. For my friend, Thor's kinsman, for double, triple choices lie upon my tongue. So, where Ale in the last poem feared that his sorrow would render him poetically speechless, here he's a craftsman with a wealth of material and two or three times the options he needs to praise Arnbjorn. Yeah, that craftsman image is an interesting one as well. It's actually a bit clearer in the original that Ailes drawing out a metaphor of craftsmanship through analogy with a carpenter's skill. Mm-hmm. This poem is full of those kinds of images. And the result, is that even though it's the same Kvithohaut uh, meter that is being used for both poems, this one conveys a sense of artistic but simple, almost musical ease, Yeah, where the sonotoric used the same form 
to convey the lurching pain of a poet struggling for words. I mean, putting them back to back like this is great, and it's yeah. it's really a, a feat of composition. But yeah. but this is essentially the difference between structure and theme in a nutshell. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, in Sonatoric, and I'm I'm going to quote Alison Finlay here. Uh, in Sonatoric, the the emphasis on difficulty reveals Ailes inner despair, mm-hmm. where in this poem. The labor which poetry making demands adds value to the gift which Ale offers to Arambure. Yeah, that's nicely said. But the implied point there is important. Contextualizing the poem is part of what gives it its value. Otherwise, it's striking familiar notes for a praise poem. Mm-hmm. What gives its weight? What gives it weight is two pieces of context. First, that it appears so close on the heels of the loss of Sun's poem. Sure. And second, that it's a gift that caps off a lifetime of friendship between these two men. I think that's fair, although I might actually put those in the opposite order of significance. Hmm. Uh, it is a standard set of compliments, but Ale exults in the aptness of their application to Arambjorn. Right? Many men are praised who do not deserve it, right? he seems to suggest oh, that yeah. throughout the poem. But in Arambjorn, the poet, delightfully, has a subject for whom words of praise can never ring hollow. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Although the way you're describing it, it would be easy to misread the poem as a set of platitudes without any real substance behind them. And that's right. And I think that's that's why your point is so important. The context of the rest of the saga is so necessary. Yeah. Right. If we look at the the next verse, we'll just go to verse 16 next, for example. Uh, Ale singles out generosity as the unifying impulse behind Arambjorn's virtues. Yes. First, I shall name how generous he always seemed. The bear whose land the birch fears. While I love most, that. Yeah, isn't it great? Uh, while most of the remainder of the poem focuses on Arambjorn's open-handedness with gifts, the idea here seems broader. Arambjorn is generous with friendship, with support, with advice, and, and yes, with money, too. Yeah, so yeah. it would be easy to mistake this for a slightly cheesy and maybe boilerplate praise poem if mm-hmm. we didn't know that all those things are true of Arambjorn. Right, at least from Ale's perspective, yeah. Well, and I want to talk a bit about that financial generosity in a second, but uh, we probably need to explain the kenning in the last bit that you read, because I think it's so great. Yeah, Yeah. I was going to get to that. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Uh, The bear whose land the birch fears. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, okay, so birch is literal here, birch wood. Uh, And the land it fears, right, the land that wood fears would be a place of fire, a fireplace. Or a hearth. Exactly, yeah, that's the better way to put it. So the kenning comes together as the bear who is of the hearth, or hearth bear. And hearth bear in Old Norse can be rendered as Arinbjorn. Such a good one. It's uh, great. And it evokes so many other things, right? I mean, hearths are places of warmth and safety. Right? Firesides are places where gifts are exchanged and so mm-hmm. on. Right? It brings together quite a few of the characteristics that Ale credits to Arinbjorn throughout the poem. Yeah. All right. Uh, I want to pick up that theme. Can we talk about stanza 22 now? Sure. You want to you want to read it first or? Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to just read. Actually, no, you should read it. But do read the Scudder translation. OK. Um, and then I will, I'll look at a I'll do a closer reading of the Old Norse. Great. The man in Fjordina shows money no love. He banishes rings that drip like fruit, defies the ring-clad verse-bruise thief, hacks treasures in half, imperils brooches. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. 
Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stanzas in the poem, uh, and I think it's one of the cleverest as well. Once yeah. you really get into it. Yeah, I mean, Ale manages to thread together canning after canning to describe Arambiorn's generosity without ever just devolving into saying directly that Arambiorn's a generous guy. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, he he shows money no love. Right? He banishes rings. He hacks treasures in half. He imperils brooches. Uh, it's a sequence of kennings for generosity, and it works really nicely within the context of Germanic praise poetry. Right. And one of the first things to notice in the stanza is Ale's effort to describe his best friend using language that positions Armbjorn among the great kings of Germanic poetry. Mm-hmm. He is the ring giver, the distributor of wealth. That's high praise, and it stands in marked contrast to Ale's supposed praise poem of King <laughs> Eric Bloodaxe. Right. I think one thing you take from this poem is that Armbjorn embodies all the ideals of good kingship. He's a protector, a giver, a loyal friend. All the things that the Norwegian kings we've encountered are not. In fact, <laughs> right. they're the exact opposite of Arnbjorn. And Ale, I think, goes even further with his praise by linking Arnbjorn's generosity to those grand images from Norse mythology. Yeah. Don't forget that brilliant line, rings that drip like fruit, which is almost certainly a reference to Dropnir. Uh, mm-hmm. Dropnir is the uh, the golden arm ring that Odin laid on Baldur's funeral pyre that afterward dripped golden copies of itself every ninth night. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. The Old Norse poem uh, here is actually quite a bit clearer about all of this stuff than Scudder's translation. Really great. Yeah, so let me read uh, the more direct translation that I prepared for this. Oh, you've been doing your homework. Well, you asked me to prepare something on the poem, so I did. (laughs) And how could I not look at the Old Norse? Fair enough. Um, Okay, so from the top, then, it goes like this. The man who lives in the fjords, he is an enemy of Draupnir's offspring. An adversary of the thief of Son, flinger of rings, treasure destroyer. <laughs> flinger of rings. Yes. That's a nice touch, but it feels like an Andy touch. Well, you know what? Some liberties had to be taken with the last two lines because, honestly, the manuscript is so corrupt here. Mm. Flinger of rings. Yep. It's like ring thrower is the suggestion that I saw, but I, <laughs> I came up with flinger of rings as a better way of saying mm-hmm. it. Uh, treasure destroyer. That That's fairly straightforward, but... Uh, that's the best interpretation I could come up with after researching the poem and looking into the state of the manuscript. Right. Yeah, we haven't really talked about this much, but this comes from the version of Ale Saga in the Mordavala book, right? Yes. And uh, the Arambjarnakvida only appears in this manuscript, but it's illegible, unfortunately, and only readable through the use of multispectral imaging. Yeah. So I had to consult uh, Thorgerth Sigurdsson's dissertation for those readings, which is oh, conveniently online. Yep. Now, fortunately, we do have a complete transcription of Ale Saga from the Mothravela book by Asker Jonsson uh, from 1700, and that includes his reading of the more legible Arnabjörn the Kvida um, from that time. You really did prepare. Well I done. did. Uh, and the poem specifically references Dropner. Yes, yes. So Ale describes Arnbjorn as the of Dolger Draupnisnitja, or the enemy of Draupnir's offspring, the descendants of Draupnir being those gold rings that it drips. Right. Yeah, see, that that's cooler than he banishes rings that drip like fruit. Well, John, good translators of skaldic poetry have to take poetic license sometimes for sense. So we'll forgive Bernard Scudder this one time, but... Oh, that's big of you. I, <laughs> I, I do... The, I, the man spent years creating this translation. I like my translation better. And, you know, I prefer the enemy of Draupner's offspring as the kenning for a generous man who distributes rings. We should also um, move ahead and touch on the verse bruise thief part. Right, yeah. 
The verse Brewer's Thief is probably a reference to Odin, who disguised himself in a number of different shapes to steal back the meat of poetry from the giant Sotung. Uh, but your translation didn't mention a verse Brewer's Thief, so how did you translate it? Yeah, it, 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 it's actually, it works as the adversary of the Thief of Son. Right, so that needs to be unpacked a bit. Yes, it does. So Son is one of the vessels that the giant Sutung used to hold the meat of poetry that Odin is trying to steal in the story from Snorri's Edda. So Scudder's decision to simplify Son to meat of poetry, that part makes sense. I agree. Uh, now, but you said the kenning here is adversary of the thief of Son, mm-hmm. which is quite different from verse Bruce thief. It's very different. See, verse Bruce thief indicates Odin, mm-hmm. uh, since he's the thief who stole the meat of poetry. But the adversary of the thief of Son, well, that can't be Odin because he's the thief of Son. Right. I mean, you'd think it has to be the giant Sutung who has the meat of poetry mm-hmm. because he's Odin's chief adversary in that story, right? You would think so, but when you work that, it doesn't really make sense if it's Sutung. I mean, how does a kenning that references Sutung work for describing a generous man, which yeah, is what not. we're trying to do, right? right? So the more common interpretation, one that I, I think actually works really well, uh, and I think Sigurd the Nordahl came up with this, mm-hmm. it's that Odin's adversary here is not Sutung, but Baugi the brother of Sutung, who Odin tricks into giving him access to the meat of poetry. Right, and why does that work better? Well, I think you know, uh, because Baugi's name is derived from the Old Norse (laughs) noun Baugr, which means ring or money. (laughs) It's a clever pun. That's a a deep cut by ale. (laughs) It is, but isn't that the mark of an excellent skaldic poem? I mean, it's certainly a mark of ale's poetry. Well done, ale. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And all of this takes up some of those same links to to myths and eddas, right? The, mm-hmm. the things that we talked about back when we were discussing the head price poem. But I guess you'd never know any of that if you just read the translation. And that's why we learn the language and consult the original. This is Huzzah. where medieval studies degrees really come in handy. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> right, this is what we bring to the table. It's not uh, much thank for the God modern there's world. Something. But <laughs> <laughs> now, there's one more thing, uh, and this is why we're devoting an entire section to Ail's feelings about Arambjorn. Uh, it's not long after Ail composes this poem, which he which he supposedly sends to Arambjorn, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, af- after he sends it, uh, he shortly afterwards gets word through a friend that Arambjorn was involved in a major battle in the succession wars going on in Scandinavia. And sadly for Ail, Arambjorn died alongside King Harald Greycloak oh, against no. the forces of Hauken Sigurdsson, also known as Hauken the Powerful. So Harold Greycloak is one of the grandsons of Harold Fairhair, the son of King Eric Bloodaxe, and of course Queen Gunhild. Mm-hmm. So that family's still proving to be toxic to anyone Ail cares about. I, I suppose Harold doesn't actually betray Armbiren; he just gets killed standing next to him. Yeah, but yes, it's still certainly fitting a pattern that those who go off to serve the Norwegian crown end up dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorolf Mark One, Thorolf Mark Two, and now Armbiren have all been taken. Yeah, it's always worth remembering that the the infamous Snorri Sturluson, who may or may not have written this saga, was also tangled up with the Norwegian crown, and he was also killed as a result of that. <laughs> sure. I mean, he obviously hoped for a different outcome, and uh, you're not suggesting that Snorri foreshadows his own death in this saga. No, no, no. I'm just saying that Snorri, if he did write this, well, Snorri was well-situated to see just how dangerous it could be to get involved with Norwegian mm-hmm. politics. That's fair. So, yeah, re- remember, Snorri... 
you know, took a mission from the king of, of Norway to go back to Iceland and convince the Icelanders to submit to the, right. the king's authority. Um, but of course, when he gets home, he doesn't do any of that. Right. So I always see it as he, maybe he was running, you know, going home to uh, maybe I'll take the mission so that I can get the hell out of this court. It seems right. like a very dangerous place. Um, but of course, that sets up his his eventual assassination. Right. And, you know, speaking of things that we should probably do a saga brief on someday, the life of Snorri Sturluson has to be done at some point. Yeah, well, I mean, some of the other podcasts, the, uh, uh, you know, History of Vikings, and they've done uh, a Mm -hmm. Snorri, but I think we could do our own spin on it. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, uh, to get back to this, uh, when he gets the word of the death of his friend, Ale makes a new verse. Sure, of course he does. Why would he stop now? I mean, we're we're on a roll with verses. (laughs) Their numbers are dwindling. The famous warriors who met with weapons and spread gifts like the gold of day. Where shall I find generous men who beyond the sea that nailed with islands girds the earth, showered snows of silver onto my hands where hawks perch in return for my words of praise? John, I I love this one. Mm-hmm. There's so many good lines in there. Yeah, he's missing these warriors who met with weapons and spread mm-hmm. gifts like the gold of day. Yep. Um, yep. How, how deep you uh, want to go with it? I mean, as we saw in the longer praise poem, I mean, generosity is one of the mm-hmm. great virtues, right? Maybe the great virtue of manly behavior in poetry of this age. Yeah. I mean, a warrior spirit counts too, obviously, but that's a that's a different thing. This is getting at how a man should be to his friends. And Arnbjorn is held up as the greatest of friends. Ab- absolutely. I mean, Arnbjorn, I, I think you know, my students picked this up, too, as we read through the mm-hmm. saga. Like, th- one of the heroes of this poem, one of the most idealistic figures of the poem is not necessarily yeah. Thorolf. It's Arnbjorn. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and and so the generosity is sort of a major feature. But I mean, it does seem as though the Arnbjorn Kvitha is serving as a kind of pre-mortem eulogy. Mm. Um and there's not much more to say than has already been said. So we're kind of left to just sort of say it all again. Uh, and from an artistic perspective, this is a nice piece of work. I mean, yeah. the image of the sea girding the earth and nailed into place by islands. That's especially well done. Isn't that well beautiful? Done, John. I love that. It's so good. I have to say, it does seem as though the Armbjörn Kavitha served as a kind of pre-mortem eulogy. I mean, there's there's not a lot to say that hasn't already been said in that poem. I, I think and that's so, quite fair, right? We, yeah. we we got the the great right. long eulogy already. This is just right. kind of capping it off. Yeah, and so this is just kind of him, yeah, saying that and all that again. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, from uh, a like narrative perspective, like yeah, I guess the only way I could explain this would be that these two poems must have existed separately, and so the author didn't want right. to didn't want to put them together. But right. narratively speaking, it would make sense if you just had Arnbjorn die and then you put the whole Arnbjorn Kvitha together. Right. And it is odd because you'd think in, as you're sort of jiggling around the bits of the poem that it wouldn't be that difficult to say that that was, that was a eulogy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think we're, we're, we're looking at a poem that is kind of being set up to fail, right? This little, this little poem is just kind of a one verse. It's a beautiful verse, but it's a one verse poem following on a massively long uh, pay-on to the glory mm-hmm. of Arnbjorn. Well, it's now time, John, to say goodbye, our final farewells to Arnbjorn, who 
he will live on in our memories as the greatest of all Norwegian companions. He, he's got to be, right? He's fantastic. I, I think he becomes the patron saint of Norwegian companions. <laughs> he does. I, I don't think there's a better one out there anywhere. I mean, he, he's been Ail's friend, his business partner, his ambassador to the Norwegian yeah. throne. And more than once, he essentially threatened to go to war with the Norwegian royal family to protect Ail. Even when Ail had done some pretty rotten stuff. Yep. Yeah, I don't think patron saint is too strong. No. Uh, farewell, Arnbjorn, and flocks of angels, etc., etc. You're on a kind of Hamlet kick tonight, aren't you? Between that and <laughs> and when your sorrows come that you did earlier, you're uh, you've got a little theme developing here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe if I manage to drop three Hamlet quotes in a single episode, uh, Shakespeare will appear and grant me wishes. <laughs> I, I, you know, it might be possible you're confusing Shakespeare with a genie and or Beetlejuice. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so, all right. We've lost Ail's sons and Arnbjorn. I'm telling you, this has turned out to be a real downer of an episode. Can we turn it around before the end? Have we got something uplifting to look at? Oh, we, can, we can try, by God. Uh, so, we said that Ail gets word of Arnbjorn's death through a friend. And we should probably explain about that friend, since by my count, we've lost almost everyone who Ail would call a friend. Well, he's still getting out and meeting people. John, he's a busy man. Sure. Part 45. The new kid. I feel like we needed like 80s theme music to go with that. <laughs> uh, you, I mean, if you can track down some solid 80s theme song music, you go, you, you go right ahead. I have no idea what it would uh, be. So, the, uh, so, Andy, the good news, uh, apart from the need for theme music, is that these final sections of the saga aren't only about depressing losses and ale mourning his friends and family. No, we've got lawsuits. And old age to keep him busy. <laughs> no, that's next time. <laughs> right. Yes. No. We're back to meeting new people. We've got, what, uh, Einar Skallaglam, right? Skallaglam. Yes. Skallaglam. Einar the Bowl Rattler. Bowl Rattler. Yeah. Skallaglam. Uh, the tragedy here is that there are so many great nicknames in the saga that a guy with a name like Bowl Rattler, well, it's probably not even going to make it into the nicknames award category. No, you'll have to wait and find out. Well, it's coming sooner rather than later at this point. But all right. Einar <laughs> is a late arrival to the saga. He comes from a family that we've talked about in a few other sagas, though. Mm-hmm. He's the son of Helgi Ottersen and the great-grandson of Bjorn the Easterner. This, John, uh, this is a good family to be connected with. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, we've talked about Bjorn the Easterner a couple of times, uh, especially in Erbidja's saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bjorn was the settlement ancestor of the Kjallaklings. Now, this would be the clan who held a protest on Helgafell by simultaneously uh, relieving themselves on the hilltop. <laughs> that's, that's, those are the ones, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Einar's grandfather, Ottar, was probably at that protest. That's so cool. Uh, but he's also got uh, Bjorn the Easterner's sister, Al the Deep-Minded, mm-hmm. as a great, great aunt. So a pretty impressive pedigree. Mm-hmm. And Oh, and Einar's also got a brother called Oswif the Wise, who's yep. been in the background in a couple of sagas we've talked about. He appears in Erbekja Saga, but also in Gunlaug Serpentung Saga. And Oswif's going to be a more important figure in Lakstala Saga when we eventually get to that. I think we're going to need to yeah. wait a little while before we tackle oh, that one. Oh, God, yeah. Let's, let's just try finishing this saga before we think about any others, please. <laughs> okay, I'm just saying it is lurking out there in the dark, waiting for us. <laughs> but anyway, so Einar, what about him? Einar is a large, strong, and accomplished man. Well, who isn't? I <laughs> mean, like everybody is. certainly nobody in this room. Not uh, Narvi. Uh, now, Einar begins composing poetry at a young age, and he likes learning things. Cool. 
So one year he seeks out Ale at the All Thing. The two of them spend a long afternoon chatting about poetry and become friends. But after that, whenever Anar's around, the two of them get together and compare notes on the poetry that they've heard or written. Now, Anar's also a big traveler, and Ale seems to use him as a kind of surrogate for his restless spirit. Now, remember, Ale's legitimately retired from adventuring abroad now, which is fair enough since he has. He's got to be at least in his 50s or 60s at this point. Yeah, at least. But he still likes to keep up uh, with what's going on around Northern Europe. So he asks Einar lots of questions about politics and about different people that Ale either likes or hates. Like Norwegian kings, for like instance. Like Norwegian kings. But it's not just them. Ale also likes to keep tabs on Arnbjorn's family through Einar. In fact, it's Einar who brings the news back to Ale that Arnbjorn was killed in Harold Greycloak's battle with Earl Hauken the Powerful. Yeah, it's actually never addressed directly, but... Einar was on the other side of that battle. He's one of Earl Hauken's men. Mm-hmm. And Ale doesn't seem to resent it, really. It's just kind of passed over. You know how politics it's, it's, are. I mean, it's not a factor in the saga's thinking, right? It's just treated as the price of war, that men are going to find themselves on opposite sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the friendship between Ale and Einar it continues to benefit the both of them. In exchange for keeping Ale up to date on the political goings-on in Scandinavia, Einar asks questions about Ale's adventures and becomes a kind of protege for Ale. Which, of course, also feeds Ale's ego just a bit. Oh, definitely. I mean, what what great poet doesn't want a student, <laughs> you know? Um, anyway, Ale also enjoys Einar's stories because Einar is just as much of a troublemaker as Ale was in his youth. Yeah, less violent, but yeah, he, he loves messing with people in power. And he loves messing with Ale, too, which is kind of fun. Yeah, he does. But uh, at one point, he composes a poem for Earl Halkin, his lord, but he titles the poem Lack of Gold. But he lets Hauken think that it's an insulting verse. So Hauken, Mm -hmm. understandably, is a little annoyed with him and refuses to listen to the poem. And then finally to clear the air, Einar composes a verse about the situation. I had mead for the battle, father, while everyone slept, about the noble warrior who rules the lands. Now I regret it. I think that the spreader of treasure, the renowned leader, considers few poets worse than me. I was too eager to come and see him. Right. That's that's basically a resignation letter. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's great. It is great. Uh, it, it's quite different than from Deor, but similar right. <laughs> right. in some ways. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and once he hears this, King Hauken relents and hears the poem, which actually turns out to be a perfectly normal praise poem with a bad right. title. Right. <laughs> so, Einar set the king up to hate the poem unheard, then acts hurt and offended when the king won't hear it, and then composes another poem threatening to pack his bags if the king doesn't get over himself and listen to the first poem. That about sums it up. It's it's great. So, is this gaslighting? Is this how that works? <laughs> Well, it's a sign of someone who just can't resist tweaking the nose of the most powerful person he knows. Yeah. I mean, you can see why Ale would like this guy. Oh, sure. Yeah. It does seem to be working out for him. Once Hauken actually hears the poem, he gives Einar a richly decorated shield as a reward gift. And Einar mm-hmm. takes that shield with him when he goes to Borg to visit Ale in the autumn to stir up a little more trouble. Yeah. Einar makes it a point to visit Ale for three days whenever he returns to Iceland. But on this occasion, Ale just happens to be away from home. So... Einar just stays at Ale's house for three days anyway, enjoying himself and sort of taking advantage of all of the hospitality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he's re- ready to leave, he hangs that golden shield over Ale's bed and tells the servants that it's a gift for Ale. And then he rides away. Which is a weird sort of prank, but I, I really like yeah. it. 
That's, that's what exactly what Ale thinks. It's a weird prank. He happens to come home later that same day, and when he sees the shield, and he learns how Anar left it for him, he says, Why, that little rascal. Does he expect me to stay awake all night making a poem about his shield? Fetch my horse so that I can ride after him and kill him. <laughs> he's going to kill him for leaving him a gift that he has to write a poem yeah. about. I love it. That's what he says. It's all bluster, obviously. Yeah. It's, it, well, I don't know. With ale, you never know. <laughs> a lot of people have died right after ale said that he was going to kill him. So uh, you never know. Right. Uh, <laughs> I know. But this is this is as close as ale gets to expressing pleasure with Anar. Yeah, I think he, he likes uh, this. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is this is all bluster. Uh, in fact, once Ale realizes he can't hope to catch up with Anar, he actually does spend the night composing a droppa in Praise of the Shield. Mm-hmm. Uh, we only get one verse of the droppa in the saga, which includes the line, It is time to light up with praise the bright bulwark I was given. Yeah, the story of the shield is interesting. Mm-hmm. Ale continues to treat this thing as a kind of ironic gift. He carries it with him on trips when he wants to get dressed up, uh, but he also mistreats it and does things like throw it in a tub of whey. <laughs> right, which is not explained. It's just no. mentioned in the saga. But, you know, his family does have a, a habit of treating really nice gifts yes. rather poorly. Um, and eventually he, he he takes the thing apart to reuse the gold fittings. And it turns out to have been, it turns out to have nearly a pound of gold in the fitting. So it's a good gift. Yeah. I mean, so so let's figure out what he's up to here. I mean, the shield itself is inoffensive and pretty, and it was a gift to Anar that Anar then re-gifts to him. Well, I think that's exactly what the point of the episode is. It's an ornamental shield made as a gift. It's got gems mm-hmm. and gold and all that, but you don't want to go into battle with a shield like that. I mean, it's, right. it's heavier than it needs to be, and I don't know if you know anything about gold, John, but it's, you know, pretty crap metal for using in battle. <laughs> so in other words, it's... Kind of a joking riff on another royal gift from much earlier in the saga. Yeah, could be. I think that's one way of reading it. And this author definitely likes parallel structuring, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, so uh, it, it's the humorous reprise of the axe that Eric Bloodaxe once gave Thorolf Mark II to give to Scott Legrim. And even the bit about hanging it in the house is similar. Right. And Ale abuses the gift. But since this one was given in legitimate, if slightly cheeky, friendship... He's also pleased about it. Yeah, it's another one of those bits of really well-crafted thematic threads that you can trace through the best sagas. Um, yeah, so that, that that maybe puts a cap on that. Is there anything else we want to say about Anar and Ale? Um, their bromance? Well, we, should, we should mention that uh, Anar Bullrattler is another one of the poets mentioned in this saga whose existence is corroborated in other texts. Mm-hmm. Anar really was a 10th century court poet to Halkin the Powerful, and his poetry is preserved in several texts. Uh, in addition to Ale's saga, he's featured in Jomsvikinga saga, the Prose Edda, and a couple of King sagas. And once more, we find a link between the Prose Edda, the King sagas, and Ale saga, all mm-hmm. texts associated with the infamous Snorri Sturluson. That's right. Uh, Anar's reputation is almost entirely built on that set of works. And Snorri really was like a one-man band of socio-historical mythologizing. That's not a bad eulogy, you know. Put that on my grave if I die before you, John. <laughs> Um, if you die before me, I'm going to be surprised. You never know. You never know. Nice, nice. Uh, so that really is it for now. Um, Ale and Anar remain friends for the rest of Ale's life. Uh, we don't really get anything else about Anar's life in the saga, but there is one significant parallel, I think, with uh, Ale's children, uh, which is that according to Lanama book, Anar drowned off the coast of Breitherfjord. Well. Just like Bolvar. 
that's a nice cheery note to end on. Thanks for that. <laughs> Happy to help. All right. I think we've uh, done enough damage for one night. Uh, do we have any letters in the listener rune sack? Well, that was an abrupt transition, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let me uh, let me just open up the old rune sack and see what we've got in here. So many rune sticks. Which one will he choose? Hold on. I'm trying to figure out the foley work here. What what would a sack of rune <laughs> sticks sound like? I imagine it would sound like a bunch of sticks in a bag. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have sticks in a bag over here. I'm not prepared, um, mm-hmm. but that doesn't matter. Oh, here's a nice looking rune stick. <laughs> <laughs> it's very convincing. It's from Torben on Rune Facebook. <laughs> he's uh, he's writing. You are stretching this to the breaking point. Uh, yeah, it's a, yeah. He's writing about our previous episode where Ale went questing in Varnland to retrieve some tribute during winter, and mm. we got a little suspicious about the timing of that thing. We mentioned that it was uh, you know winter, which seemed like a very dangerous time to attempt such a long journey. But right. Torben suggests that there's some sense in it. He writes. Before you get too snarky about traveling in winter, (laughs) which I like that, uh, when there are no paved roads and no convenient waterways, the best way to move heavy loads over land is during the winter with horses and sleds. You know, that's actually a great point. It is a great point, and I think he's absolutely right. So, you know, as after I read that, I went back and looked at Thorolf the First's tribute missions Mm -hmm. to Finnmark from earlier in the saga, and you would think going farther north into into the the kind of the, the Arctic uh, would not be a good idea in the winter, but guess when right. he travels to collect the tribute from Finnmark? In the winter, of in course. In the winter. We should have remembered that. We should have remembered that, but we didn't. And now we look like idiots. <laughs> Fortunately, we have smart listeners who can help correct our mistakes. You know, it's another interesting point here, which is that both of those cases, they're going to collect tribute. Mm-hmm. And of course, when is the best time to collect tribute? It's after the harvest. Yeah. At the beginning of winter. That's right. Would be the time that you'd want to do that. You don't want to be collecting harvest, collecting tribute at the beginning of summer. Right. When everybody's sort of scrabbling to get by. You want to be doing it when everybody's stores are full. And what do, what do all these you know great men do during the summer? They go raiding in other parts of right. the world. So right. When, you want to find men at home, you wait till Yule. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Oh, we really are fools, aren't we? We're, we're <laughs> just a bunch of dummies. It's all so clear now. Thanks, Torben. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about a question? Bring it on. All right. Well, here's another Rune stick uh, from Rune Facebook. It's from <laughs> Stephanie Wiseman. Uh, she carved this one for us, and it it says uh-huh. uh, that she was listening to Nyal Saga again. And I don't, why would she be listening to Nyal Saga again? again? Oh, God bless you. Who would do such a thing? Uh, anyway, she found Gunnar's death scene more frustrating the second time around. So she writes or carves, I should say. When Holgerth refused to give Gunnar her hair for a bowstring, why didn't he or his mom just reach over and yank some out of her head? (laughs) He already established that he was willing to use violence against her, and I can't Mm. imagine his mom would have any qualms with beating this woman up. She didn't say that, but, you know. Uh, But it's very clear in the text. (laughs) Um, She says, I mean, I get that Gunnar needed to die for the sake of the plot, but it just seems unrealistic that in a life and death situation, they would just passively accept her saying no. So she wants to know, John, why Gunnar just rolls over and accepts Holger's refusal to help him in this life and death situation. Okay. First of all, thanks, Stephanie, for writing in. Uh, it's a very fair question. Uh, given what we've seen up to that point, does it make thematic sense for Gunnar to accept Holger's refusal of the lock of hair? This is a classic stalling maneuver where you just repeat the question. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm 
positioning the question so I can explain my answer. I see. And can you just briefly remind us of the scene we're talking about here? I can indeed. Um, this is that moment when uh, Gunnar is trapped in his house and uh, they're, they're all attacking him. And he's been using his bow to fend them off. Um, everything's going mm-hmm. well. But then suddenly his bowstring breaks and Gunnar is getting wounded by a bunch of men. And he's, he asks Holgerth to give him two locks of her hair and then have her and her mother twist them into a bowstring. So he's going to repair the bow and save his life. But she replies, does anything depend on it? You remember? <laughs> he says, yeah, my life depends on this. Uh, they're, right. they're never going to be able to get me if I have my bow. And that's when she says, well, I'd like to remind you of the slap that you gave me. And I don't care whether you hold out for a long time or a short time. And so then uh, Gunnar says something like, everyone has a mark of distinction, and uh-huh. he accepts his death. Great. Uh, thank you. So th- there are several possibilities here. Uh, first, we have to accept a counterfactual, which is that Holgerth's hair could reasonably be plaited and tied into a working bowstring in the space of a few seconds. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that's a big if. To say the least. And we, we talked about that on our uh, Archer yeah. uh, interview. Yeah. And uh, I think they concluded... Right. It's a really big issue. Not so much. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not the, the saga's reality, right? The saga's reality is that Gunnar makes that request apparently seriously. Mm-hmm. If we want to talk about whether this is something other than a real request, if he's using the moment to try to reconcile with his wife or if he's just desperate and talking nonsense, then we have an entirely different set of interpretations to work from. But let's, let's grant the saga reality. Right? Uh, and if we do that, we have a few things that are possible. First is why no one else's hair will do. And that's not really a problem. Right. I mean, the saga has been setting up from the first chapter that Holgerth has exceptionally long and lustrous hair, mm-hmm. probably because the author knows that this moment is going to come up later on. It's important. Of course. Yeah. So uh, and then second, we have Gunnar's pride. He asked Holgerth for the hair and was refused. It was a big deal for him to ask. I can't remember any other time in the saga when he asks anyone but Njal for help with anything. Mm-hmm. And she turns him down. Right? So it would be a matter of pride to him not to pursue the matter any further. And then third, and this is related to the first couple of points, Andy, do you recall why Gunnar once struck Holgerth? Yeah, well, because of the time she stole food from a neighbor's storeroom. Yeah. It was the case of the missing cheese, if I recall. Right. Although I think you mean the caisson of the missing cheese. Oh, I hate you. Oh, so <laughs> If we were next to each but other, you're quite right. I would punch uh, you, but... You're far away. Uh, <laughs> well, fortunately for me, I'm far away. <laughs> uh, but you're right. It was because of her theft. Gunnar hates thieving and hates dishonesty. And once Holgerth refuses him, taking her hair by force would definitely be a bit like a theft. Mm. It would be as much as conceding that Holgerth's original action was justifiable. If Gunnar, no matter how great his need, if he were to take something that is not his. Oh, that's interesting. W- wait till I get going. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> you're making Prince's Bride references for no good reason. That's what you're doing. Precisely. Uh, and there's one more point to consider, and this one's a bit more meta narrative. Oh, boy. Locks of hair are recognized love tokens in continental literature, in poetry, in, and in various medieval cultures. Um, they're sometimes given as a sign of a lady's willingness to return a knight's affection. And like other love tokens, they can mark out a knight as a lady's favorite in a duel or attorney. And whether or not it's relevant to the moment in the text, and I don't necessarily think it is, a writer of the caliber of the Nyalsaga author wouldn't miss the connection of a lock of hair as a symbol of a lover's favor. Right? This is a tech. This is a saga written very late in the saga era. 
Hmm. He knows continental literature. Gunnar asking for the lock of hair takes the part of a would-be lover asking for a token to show that his lady loves him, favors him, and will root for his success in a physical contest. When Holgerth rejects that request, she also rejects his overture of a final reconciliation of their love. Hmm. That is very interesting. Um, very clever of you to come up with all of that. If I'm honest, <laughs> you're not buying it, are if you? If I'm honest, I'm, I, I see the potential. You're you're right about the exchange of you know the hair and with bidet. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not buying that. Um, I, 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 <laughs> Will you buy that he's not going to steal anything that doesn't belong to him and thus yes, justify? I think this, you know, I think the idea that that Gunnar would strike her for this reason, uh, that he would abuse a woman, is is no. Yeah, he did slap her, but he, there was a a justification in his in his world for that slap. Right. This is not right. one of those situations. And right. And again, it would be it would be as good as admitting that she had a point. Yeah. Uh, that in extreme need she'd stolen. And so he does the same. And again, narratively, as as Stephanie, you know, is already well aware of, narratively, what has Gunnar, one of Gunnar's defining characteristics, especially in the second half of his part of the saga, is mm-hmm. he's kind of trying to run away from his fate as much as possible, trying to avoid it. But this is the moment where he has to resign himself to accepting yeah. that, that fate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So great question great. and uh, a, a subpar answer from John, but a clever and creative one. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> a staggering work of heartbreaking genius. <laughs> uh, so that's going to do it for this time. Uh, if you'd like to tell us what we got wrong, what you thought of Ale's poems or what you're doing for the holidays, you can reach us at all the usual social media. You can reach us on Facebook where we're Saga Thing Podcast or by email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can join in on our conversations on Twitter where we are Saga Thing Pod. Or you can check out our WordPress blog, which is sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can check us out on Instagram, we are, where we are Sagathing Podcast, I think. Or carve your message onto a golden shield and hang it above our beds. We promise not to take it personally. All right. That's all for now. We will be back soon with a thrilling conclusion to Ale Saga. An actual conclusion. Is that a promise? Well, it's a strong assertion, I think. I'll take it. All right. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. The line is these pretzels are making me thirsty. Just say <laughs> No, no, no. You got you got to say it like this. This dulse is making me thirsty. <laughs> <laughs>